Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about recovery from addiction. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by High Desert Counseling, Rise Up Supplements, and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. Hot, hot, hot. It is smoking hot down here in the high deserts of southern Utah, where I live. St. George, Utah. Check it out. We've, we've been having some pretty hot days here, Sean, right? No, not really. What do you mean, man? I mean, I'm like pitting in the studio as we speak. You know, comparatively, well, dude, July is like tomorrow, and it's barely 100 degrees. Come well, on, we should be like we should be sitting at about 110, 111 right about now. Very true. You know, very so true. this is like completely just easy. So I don't know what you're complaining about. Man, pansy. Well, you know, I, over I, you're right. You're right. Jeez. Maybe I'm just spending too much time outdoors these days. Speaking of outdoors, <laughs> congratulations, everybody. The 4th of July is right around the corner. Super excited for that. Be safe. Be sober. Have a great 4th of July. Make it a memorable one, one that you'll actually remember the next day. You know what I'm talking about. So thank you guys for listening to this. This is episode 124 of We Do Recover. I'm your host of this thing, Jared Miller. And... Real quick, this podcast is absolutely free. Its content will always be free. The only thing we ask is for you to keep what you have by giving it away. You know what I'm talking about, right? Share this out with with your crazy cousin Carl or whatever other family members you have, with you know your coworkers, your friends. Uh, let's just sp- spread a little you know message of hope here. So, on today's episode, I have the honor of having my guy, one of my buddies, I met this dude out in Warsaw, Indiana, almost a year ago, Matt Traver. Matt's going on. What's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm just a grateful recovery addict. Happy to be here, man. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, It's long overdue, man. I know, dude. It's crazy. We're like brothers from other mothers. You're just all the way out there in Wisconsin. How's Wisconsin's weather since we're talking about weather in the 4th of July? Um, it's pretty warm for this time of year, but we, we're getting hit by the, the smoke from the wildfires. So they're like, stay inside unless you absolutely, absolutely have to go outside, which is kind of, it's kind of weird, but you know, everyone's still just doing what they do. No one's really paying it any mind <laughs> myself, you know, they don't want you but, getting mother nature's secondhand smoke. Is that what it is? I guess not. I mean, I was at a fundraiser yesterday and this guy, he's real allergenic and it looked like he just got done being pepper sprayed. Like everything. It was just real. Like it's hitting some harder than others. Yeah, it's crazy. That's crazy, man. Crazy. Well, I'm glad you're indoors. I'm glad you're staying safe. I don't want you to get mother nature secondhand smoke. Welcome to the podcast. Glad you're on here, man. It's good to reunite with you again. Sounds like we're going to be sharing a stage in a few months upcoming here and we'll get to all that stuff before we get to Matt's story. We Do Recover with Jared Miller is sponsored by High Desert Counseling. High Desert Counseling is a progressive substance abuse treatment facility with a practical approach. They offer day treatment, morning and evening IOP, continuation of care, and Prime for Life programs. Check out their website at highdesert.help or call them at 435-673-2899. That's 435 435- <coughs> Six seven three two eight nine nine. Their facilities are located in St. Jude, St. George, and Cedar City, Utah. Episode one twenty four is also brought to us by Rise Up Supplements. Rise Up Supplements is a nootropic line aimed at optimizing brain function and supporting mental health. They have two powerful blends. Mindful Mood helps decrease anxiety 
and enhance mood who couldn't benefit from that while MindShift helps increase focus and optimize brain function. Place your order today at riseupsups.com. That's R-I-S-E-U-P-S-U-P-S dot C-O-M. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST20 to save yourself 20% off your entire purchase. All right, we got those knocked out. We appreciate both of those organizations sponsoring this podcast. It wouldn't be possible without them. That's how Sean Denovan, our producer, gets paid the big the big checks, right, Sean? What's your new and good, buddy? Speaking of getting paid new check, big checks, my wife's motorcycle is fixed. I get to pick it up after the podcast. Nice, nice. And then I'm going to say, okay, it's time to learn to ride the bike because we have to be in Sturgis in one month. So she's got a month to figure out how to ride a motorcycle and then do the thousand miles there and back. Has she been practicing by turning her blow dryer on hot and just putting it right in front of her face? <laughs> Like, just getting used to that heat that we got down here in the desert? Well, you know, once we get past Panaka, everything's fine. Say Panaka five Panaka. times fast. Panaka, 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 Panaka. Oh, that's right. I messed that one up. That's my new well, one. cool, good. man. Does she have a Harley? What's she got? Uh, she's got a Honda Shadow. Nice. It's uh, chopped and bobbed a little bit, so it looks cool. It's, it's, all, it's the Chinese version of it's, Harley. It's, it's brown. Hey, hey. Hey. Isn't it? Hey, hey, hey. Is so, it Honda made overseas, or is that Yamaha? It I don't doesn't know. matter. Uh, you know how much a Harley costs? Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's why I drive a Honda. Okay. <laughs> I'm not doing enough of these podcasts to pay for a new Harley. That's right. That's right. we got to crank those up. All right, Matt, let's kick it to you. What's new and good, man? What's going on in your world? Um, not much. Um, <clears throat> just uh, been trying to get to speaking of motorcycles, where my uh, nonprofit, Never Give Up, is hosting its first annual ever NGU David John Peters motorcycle run. Um and July 29th, so that I'm looking forward to that. You know, it's it's a lot of people coming out to ride for a good cause. Um, you know, because Never Give Up not only you know addresses addiction, but we also like address the you know the root causes of addiction, like trauma and PTSD and mental health and things like that. So we're really excited to create awareness about that as well while doing the motorcycle run. Um, we just had our last fundraiser. Um, it was a bags tournament. You know, like. We're brand new. We're in the like the foundation stages of our 501c3. Like if it was a house right now, we just laid the concrete for the foundation and we're trying to, you know, keep this thing going to open sober living and prison reentry homes. That is amazing, man. Let's talk a little bit about that since you brought it up. So never give up. I love the title. Mm-hmm. Where did it start? And I you've already kind of shared your vision, right? Where you want to go with it. But let's get a little bit of the backlog on that. All right. Well, um, April 1st, 2020, right. The day the country got locked down, you know, with the pandemic and everything, like when it was officially like shut down, at least in the Midwest, it was, uh, my best friend, David John Peters, the founder of never give up. He, he relapsed the night before and, mm. you know, I was talking to him and I went over there, you know, cause he was, um, really under the influence of methamphetamine and he was, you know, paranoid and like worried about stuff. And I went there and like, helped him put together all his electronics. And anyway, he, um, I was like, you know, when he calmed down, I was like, so are you going to go back to, you know, HA and get your white key tag? And he's like, I don't want to give those people anything to talk about. I don't want them to judge me. I just, I don't want to give them, you know, bullets and board material to like, you know, feel better about themselves. And then, you know, I talked him off the ledge and I calmed him down and I like rewired his heater and, you know, a ceiling fan, everything. And then I went home and then I went to work the next day and he's like, bro, I started this Facebook group. It's called never give up. And I'm like, all right, let's do it, man. And, um, then like literally like 
two hours later, the, they made the announcement to lock the country down during the pandemic. And then he shared his story of recovery and incarceration. And then the next day I went. And then, you know, with all the craziness going on in the news with the, you know, the pandemic and then followed by the George Floyd riots and stuff, it gave people a positive place to come and focus like as a distraction from the uglies in the world. And then from that, you know, because our bread and butter was having people come and share their stories because I don't know about you guys, but like for me, when I first got in recovery, hearing the things that people had done, you know, in their addiction, you know, not to compare my addiction to anyone else's, but, you know, and then seeing them being happy, joyous and free from the chains of addiction after hearing what they had done gave me hope. So we figured we would just like pay it forward that way. And then we, you know, the Facebook group blew up. Like, I mean, within two weeks, we had like 2000, 3000 members and it just kept going and going and going. And then we started getting reached out or, you know, people reaching out to us, you know, from like local government agencies, local treatment centers, local, you know, fellowships, um, you know, to try to really do something positive, make it more than just a Facebook platform. And then that's where the idea of the 501c3 came into play. And then once we did that, you know, because David John Peters was in and out of prison, you know, most of his adult life. And then he did six years, the last stretch, and he never got his treatment needs addressed. And then like when they let him out, they just let him out with nowhere to go. They're like, here, you figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then that's where the idea of sober living in prison reentry homes came from. So that's how that started. And then like as the pandemic worsened, more and more people paid attention to us. And then more and more people supported us because, you know, we were walking the walk and people were really being helped by this. Like, I mean, I still see people, you know, now like three years later, three and a half years later, they're like, you guys have no idea what that group did for me and how it helped me get through the pandemic. And, you know, one story I like to share about it is, you know, it's not a, you know, while it was rooted in addiction, there was like one lady that reached out and she had lost her significant other to cancer and she had five children. And then I, I met through the group, a lady who had six kids who lost her significant other to cancer. And then we linked them up and they started like their own online support group, like widows of cancer with, you know, wow. and it was just really beautiful, man. Like, you know, and like, you know, just to see it grow from like just an idea and like, as Dave would put it, like a cell phone and a dream to like being what it is today. And, you know, he passed away February 19th of 2021. Um, and then we, we kept this thing going and we got our 501c3 and now we're just trying to keep it forward and keep his vision alive. Keep this thing moving, man. That's awesome. Isn't it insane how social media, you can reach so many people these days, right? Give them a, a place to find their tribe, a place to be able to relate and draw strength from. That's fantastic, man. It's even sounds like a couple there's been some spinoffs of what you've got going on. So, and everything you described yeah. is what this podcast is all about, right? Sharing a story of recovery, not being ashamed or, or, uh, affected by the stigma, getting mm-hmm. up and saying, here I am, this is who I am. And in the hopes that it helps somebody else find their path. So speaking of all that, I take it you're a person in long-term recovery yourself, Matt. Absolutely. On the 4th of July, I'll have five and a half years. That's- absolute surprise. That's crazy. Yours is the fourth. Mine's the third. So I'm coming up on nine, but that's yeah. congratulations, man. Now, when I, when I got my six months on the 4th of July of 2000. Yeah. And, um, I told my mom, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting my six month chip and the city is blowing off fireworks. And she's like, really? You know, because <laughs> I'm like, no, ma, it's just a holiday. But you know, it's like, she was so like amazed that I actually had six months at that point, you know, because I had 20 years of just hardcore 20 plus years of hardcore addiction, you know, and she's seen me just like going in and out of jail and, 
you know, being homeless multiple times and just like hitting her up for money. So to have six months of like absolute sobriety, you know, it it meant a lot to her. Ooh, you just gave us a teaser, Matt. Where does that story begin? My friend? Um, well, my, my story of addiction, it actually begins at an early age, like when in my childhood, um, you know, I was, um, six years old. I'm a survivor of sexual trauma or sexual abuse. Um, you know, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. It's right on the state line in Illinois, but it like me and my friends were like the kids from stand by me, you know, we just like, you know, hung out on the corner, played kickball and, you know, all the things kids do in, you know, small town Midwest. And, you know, like the street lights, street lights came on and you went inside. And if your mom had to whistle for you more than twice, then you were going to get it, you know, but, uh, (laughs) you didn't want two whistles, man. Two whistles was bad, bad news. I got two whistles. I ran the other way from my house, you know, but <laughs> smart man. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, there was one, there was a, you know, I was like six or seven and then there was an older kid that hung out with us. He was like 13, 14. And he was like, you know, come, come behind the garage. I want to show you something. And, mm. you know, I, he, you know, I played with the kid every day. I didn't think nothing of it. And then he like, he put a knife to my throat and told me I'm going to do what I want to you or I'm going to stab you. And, you know, I realized I thought he was kidding. And then when he like, pressed it up against my neck, I realized he wasn't. And then at that moment in time, my, my childhood innocence was just like taken from me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, like, I was still a kid, but like in my mind, like I was just like destroyed. Like I didn't trust anybody and it was real traumatic obviously. And then it caused me to isolate. And then my, the way my addiction materialized at that age was through food, you know, because like, I, you know, I was just locked in. I was watching cartoons, playing Nintendo, and then I would just eat and eat and eat because I like I had this secret and I couldn't tell anybody, you know, and um, and you're isolated and looking for some type of pleasure. And guess what brings us huge amounts of dopamine, sugar, sweets, Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was just the one thing I felt like I could control and I abused it. And, you know, that was when my addiction really first manifested its ugly disease in my brain. And Um, you know, by the time I was 10 years old, I was actually like wider than I was tall. And I think the biggest I got at 10 years old was like 305 pounds or something like that. And, you know, like when you're, when you're a kid and the neighborhood kids are those nicknames or those names they call you are just brutal. And then, you know, it just picked up my self-worth and my self-esteem. So I just stayed in more and I ate more. And like, um, you know, my mom was dating this abusive alcoholic and I wanted th- another thing that like really made me made it worse but this is was the first time I experienced anger you know because I was afraid a lot but this was the first time I really wanted to inflict violence on another human being um you know like w- in the winter time you know like back in the 80s the kids had those moon boots that were you know they left oh, yeah. man side prints in the snow well he came home drunk and he saw big footprints in the snow from you know my friends mm. playing in the snow and he thought my mom like stepped out on him and we were, we were dirt poor. We didn't have a lot. So she, you know, but we got like a, a drumstick ice cream cone and it was like, you know, a, you know, it was a big deal. Yeah. That's like, and a, she, yeah. Yeah. And she, um, she went to hand it to me and he just like punched her and knocked her out. And she, I remember seeing her laying there and she was like holding the ice cream cone and as she squeezed it, it like came out of her hands, but she was like out cold, you know? And I just remember that I wanted to kill him. Yeah. You know, and that was, it went from being afraid all the time. And then from that, I started getting more angry, more violent. And, you know, then one day she just like put everything we had in the car and moved to North Chicago, Waukegan, Illinois, which is, was like night and day from, 
you know, the small town of Wisconsin. It was, you know, kind of hood, kind of ghetto, um, you know, and then I started, you know, uh, again, I'm isolated because, you know, I'm this country kid, you know, moving to the city and everybody's like a gangbanger, you know, and like, I, once again, I was just out an outcast and isolated and I just became more and more shut in and, you know, and like, I just became shy to where I didn't even talk at all. Got you. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's like, man, the thing I love about what you're sharing right now, Matt, is a lot of people come on and they're like, At eight years old, I had my first beer. Or at 13, I smoked crack for the first time, right? Like you're sharing the, the stuff that really kind of led before the substance abuse where, where the, you know, the, the base, the basement, right? Um, yeah. If we hypothetically compare it to building a house like you did earlier with, with never give up. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So you moved to the city, right? You're, you're a bigger kid. You feel like a, you know, a round yeah. peg in a square hole. Absolutely. And then, you know, I just, I got picked on a lot because, you know, I was the only white kid really. I mean, I had some friends, but like I got bullied a lot. I got, you know, I get jumped a lot after school, you know, a lot. And then one day I was walking home and I saw like these, these two kids beating up this other little kid. And I like, you know, I was the same size. I am basically now a little shorter, but you know, and I just, I don't like bullies. So I just like pushed them off and the kid that I helped got up and like flipped me off. He's like, I didn't need your help or whatever, but he went, you know, he ran away and I didn't think nothing of it. And my mom was working, you know, three jobs or two jobs. She was never home. You know, she was just trying to make ends meet. And all of a sudden there was a knock on my door and, um, I opened the door and like the scariest dude I've ever seen in my life, you know, just, you know, anyway, it was his like neighborhood to run. And what I didn't realize is that the kid I helped was like his little brother, you know, and then he like walks in my house and he's like, do you want to make some money, man? And I'm like, uh, sure. You know? And then, so he had me like on the corner looking out for him and then he'd give me money and, you know, and then that was the first time I realized like the, you know, power and respect that came with like the dope game. You know, I didn't do drugs yet. I didn't, you know, sell them yet, but I was just out there posted up, you know, being a part of a, a drug dealing syndicate, if you want to call it that, or, you know, just, you know, the criminal element. Right. And, you know, and then like, as I got through, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, um, my mom decided she wanted to move back to Wisconsin. Um, and then it was, you know, right around where that other small town was, but the guy was gone and all this stuff. And, you know, but at this point I'm wearing like Jinkos and big hoodies and like Timberlands, you know, cause I'm blending into my environment out there. And, uh, so I moved back, you know, my first, my freshman year of high school, and everybody's got cowboy hats and big belt buckles. And then here I am in like, you know, Timberlands and hoodies, you know, just straight out of the hood type stuff. And, you know, so once again, I'm an outcast, I'm isolated and I'm just keeping to myself cause I don't really vibe with these people and they're calling me names and, you know, just picking on me and, you know, and then I, you know, I made friends with one of the kids, you know, local farmer kid and he invited me to a keg party. And then I started, I had my first beer, you know, and what age is this? I had, this is 14 years old. 14. Okay. And, then, and then, you know, once I had my first beer, I loosened up right away. And then I'm like, you know, I wasn't quiet. I wasn't shy anymore. I'm talking to everybody. I'm making jokes, you know, and like, it, you know, like it was the thing I was looking for my whole life. So I thought like alcohol was my solution. You know, I'm like, this is it, man. I, I finally feel at peace. I finally feel like comfortable in my own skin. And then we started drinking before school and, you know, drinking during school and, than just not going to school. And then, um, you know, I was realizing that like my drinking was getting out of hand. So, 
a buddy of mine introduced me to marijuana and I started smoking marijuana. And then once again, it was like what I was looking for my whole life. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't sloppy, drunk, stumbling around. I was just like chill. And, you know, you know, it was just, you know, it was just a different type of vibe, but I liked that. So I really stuck to weed. And then, you know, I started selling weed and, you know, doing things like that. And, you know, it just progressed from there, you know, and then my sophomore year, it became, acid and then my junior year it became mushrooms and then like my senior year it became molly and as i you know went through my high school career so my my drug career escalated as well you know and like every every summer it was something new and every summer i thought i found exactly what i was looking for right you know and right you started yeah. doing the cross addiction thing right yeah would yeah. you say at the time though it's it was more recreational or do you feel like you had an addiction and it was a dependency at that point Right. Because like uh, one thing that's a common theme is a lot of people are in that curious stage in their adolescence, right? Junior high, high school, whatever it may be, early college. Um, so mm-hmm. there is a definite difference between recreational or experimental versus like chemical dependent. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, for and it in the beginning, like the first two months, you know, like because it, it would always start at the beginning of summer or something new. You know, but by the end of the summer, it was not recreational at all. Like, you know, the first couple of weeks of summer, I was like, yeah, we should do that next weekend, you know? And then next thing I know, I'm taking acid every day. And then, you know, right. my junior year, I'm taking mushrooms every day, you know, in August. And, you know, my senior year, I'm eating ecstasy every day, like they're Tic Tacs. And, you know, you know how the, uh, the disease progresses. Right. It just, yeah. Because, yeah. like, you know, between my parents, you know, the addiction gene was in both of them. You know, my dad was my real dad was, you know, huge into cocaine and he went to prison forever. Like, I didn't really know him. And, um, you know, my mom, she she's not like that now. And I never really saw her like that. But before me, she was I heard she was, you know, doing her fair share of partying and stuff. So and that's something that I don't think enough people touch on is that genetic component up to 60 percent of people um, that their parents or somewhere in the line of genealogy who's had an addiction, it puts them at a, a higher risk, right? Like a 60% higher risk that they will develop some type of substance use disorder, AKA addiction. If we don't want to sound like clinical, you know what I mean? Uh, but, but a lot of people don't know that they don't know that. Like it blows yeah. them away when they, when they hear that and they're like, Oh man, you know, mm-hmm. cause oftentimes, I don't know if you were ever this way kind of, and we're going to get into your story of recovery in the second half of this, but when they get into that stage of like the recovery, I can remember, I would always think like, why, why did this happen? Right? Like I couldn't, before I even knew what was going on, I was already dependent before I realized that it was, I couldn't stop. Right. Powerless is kind of the principle or the concept. Was that the case for you or what did that look like? No, absolutely. Once I tried something new, I like within a week or two, I was powerless over it, you know, because it was just, uh, it was a temporary solution to my permanent problems, you know, that went unaddressed, you know, and I, I tell people this all the time, like the sexual trauma, like once I got into IOP later, and we'll get into that later, I, I almost forgot about the sexual trauma until I did the, the my timeline or my lifeline. And I started going backwards at all the, you know, the life changing events. And I'm like, holy shit, I got assaulted as a kid, you know? And, um, yeah, but you know, because like, I just wanted, you know, like I was running away from something, but it got so bad as my disease progressed, I wasn't sure what I was running from anymore, or what I was trying to get away from. And it turns out it was this thing that happened to me at six years old, you know, man, I just got the biggest smile on my face. If you could see it, because like, it, yeah, I'm excited to get to that in the next minute and a half. Um, 
because a lot of people, that's exactly it, right? Like trauma does something to our memory where it suppresses it and it tries to protect you by kind of keeping you from it. And especially like when we're shutting down our frontal cortex and we're not able to think and, and it shuts down that memory system in our brain. So it makes sense when you kind of started getting clean, it started coming back online and you're all of a sudden like ding, right? Light yeah. goes off. Light yeah. goes off. We got about a minute left here, Matt. So eventually is that kind of all the, the substance of use or uh, I want to no. be able to leave enough time for your story to recover. You're doing some cool stuff these days. Yeah, no, I, you know, and then like after, you know, like the summer after high school, I tried cocaine and then, you know, I moved to Minnesota and then my 20, 20, when I was 22, I tried methamphetamine for the first time. And then a couple of years later, I got into opiates, you know, and then towards the end of my addiction, um, the last 10 years of it, up until I was 38 years old, I was doing methamphetamine and heroin every day. Um, you know, I would do heroin in the morning if I went to bed just so I could get well enough so I could go steal. And then I would do meth to, you know, motivate me to do more spiritually sick things yeah, to man. feed my, my addiction. You know, it's a, it's a vicious it was, cycle of gas pedal and brake, gas pedal and brake, gas pedal and brake. Right. Absolutely. Like all my mug shots, I like if one eyes popped wide open. The other one's like real little, it's like <laughs> half a meter. But I'm sure I'm having some like, medical. Yeah, we'll be right back after this short little uh, mention from our sponsor. We're going to get uh, Matt's rock bottom and his story of the climb after this short little 30-second break. We'll see you in a sec. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Brought to you by High Desert Counseling, Rise of Supplements, and the Hilton Garden Inn. High Desert Counseling is an adult outpatient substance abuse treatment facility. We offer multiple services, including day treatment, morning and evening intensive outpatient services, continuing care, and Prime for Life. What makes us different is our emphasis on gathering all of the information before enrollment. We do this by offering a thorough evaluation by a credentialed professional. Once we have committed to you and you have committed to us, don't worry, insurance will not dictate your treatment. Lastly, the pretzel effect. We are a brief intervention where we connect our clients to community, mental health, and medical professionals to help maintain recovery for life after treatment. At High Desert Counseling, we strive to be the bridge from active addiction to recovery, community, and connection. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by High Desert Counseling, Rise Up Supplements, and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. We are back, baby. Unfortunately, Dr. Terry Sellers couldn't join us today because he came down with some kind of tummy bug, some kind of flu or something like that. He wasn't feeling too great, but uh, we wish him the best. I think that was the uh, um, 85 and an 80 bug that he usually gets, or the 95 and the 80 bug that he usually gets. Driving insanely too fast? Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I was implying at all. No, no, not at all. (laughs) Yeah, who knows? Maybe he totaled another car. I don't know. Anyways, we wish him the best. (laughs) Maybe he totaled another car? He texted us back. What? So he's totaled some cars, man. He's he's kind of a crazy driver. Um, I don't think that's the case though. Cause he bought one of those cars that like drives for him now. Anyways, uh, we wish him the best. Hopefully he, he gets, uh, feeling better. Welcome back. Episode 124. We got Matt Traver here and we are rocking and rolling. Matt has shared that he, you know, started off, had, had 
some uh, unfortunate events happened to him in his childhood. Obviously, like a lot of us in, in high school, started graduating from um, one substance to another. Ultimately, it led to the point where he was using methamphetamine and, and heroin on a daily basis, full-blown addiction dependency. If you're listening to this, most likely you know what we're talking about. Before we get back to Matt, episode 124 is brought to us by the Hilton Garden Inn. It is always sunny and bright at the Hilton Garden Inn in St. George, Utah. Uh, we, If you're traveling through Southern Utah, give them a Google search. Just type in Hilton Garden Hilton Garden in St. George, Utah. Have amazing amenities. The place is always clean, spectacular, great customer service. We appreciate them sponsoring this podcast. Matt, you left us on kind of a cliffhanger there. It was a buildup. So look, man, first and foremost, thank you for being vulnerable to share some of the stuff that you've shared. Not a lot of people would be willing to do that. And that's incredible. You know, like, I don't know if you're like me, but when I first started getting into this recovery thing and the treatment thing and the gel thing, like I wasn't talking about my stuff, right? Because like, I, I was afraid you were going to use it as a weapon against me. Or I was afraid like somehow that made me less of a man or I was afraid, right? Like all those fears. And then I got hit with the 10 myths of manhood. Boom. Yeah. Right. Dang that assignment opened my eyes to what a real man looks like. So I just appreciate you being a real man coming on here, sharing your stuff in hopes that if somebody out there has gone through something like that and they're currently, you know, trying to escape from the traumas that they've experienced through substances, they can look at you and go, man, maybe I can reach out to Matt. If this dude has been able to do it, so can I. So let's get back to that story. So the buildup active addiction looks pretty messy, right? What is it? Where was kind of your rock bottom? Um, my rock bottom, um, I had, you know, like I had to beat a meth lab case in Jefferson County, Wisconsin. Um, the cops on my case at the time were embezzling money from other investigations. So they had to throw a bunch of evidence out, um, except for me buying my own Sudafed. And then can I just pause I, you, you know, right there, Matt, yeah. you were in pretty deep, dude. Yeah, you, sure. you just said I beat a methamphetamine, uh, say that a methamphetamine production case, right? Like. <clears throat> yep, meth lab. First functioning lab in Jefferson County's history. And when the judge sentenced me to a year, she looked at the detectives and was like, it makes me sick to my stomach that I can mm -hmm. only sentence Mr. Favor to a year because my first offer was 18 years in and 18 years out. I wouldn't be here. I'd still be there, actually. And, you know, I did my my time and, I, you know, I got off probation and I I had a choice. I can either move to Green Bay or I can move to Miami. And what kept me here is because I was still in active addiction um, well, if I, you know, cause I was still, you know, I've read outside Madison. I'm like, well, if I need to get dope, it's only a two hour drive. You know, I didn't want to be in Miami far away from drugs where I didn't know anybody. So <clears throat> that's one instance where being an addict actually saved me my life and long term. Um, do you ever you know, look back and do you ever look back and just go like, thank you, HP. Thank you. Absolutely. Higher power. Right. Like do when you just shared, I would still be in there today. Like I felt sick to my stomach. Yeah. Like Absolutely. that's insane, man. Okay. 100%. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're all good, man. I, um, you know, so I, I came to green Bay and I, I quit doing a lot of hard drugs. I mean, I was still doing heroin here and there. And then, um, <laughs> you know, I got my place and I got, you know, you know, a good job and, you know, and then things were going really well. So I'm like, we should celebrate. So we went to Milwaukee and got a bunch of heroin and then the next day and the next day, you know, and then, um, I started selling heroin in green Bay Long story short, I started getting, in, you know, networking with the wrong types of people in Green Bay. And I started getting all these 
little ticky tack charges, you know, like I would get caught with a needle or, you know, a cotton ball and then I wouldn't go to court. And then I got evicted from the apartment. And then I was on the run basically for about 14 months, I think, or something like that, you know, just missing court dates. And then I got picked up and then they wanted to offer me six years in and six years out for all the things that I missed. And I was, you know, I was like, these are, it's like paraphernalia tickets. So they're like, well, they're real pissed about you beating that meth lab case. So they offered me a uh, heroin treatment court and I never heard of it. And I was still in a really bad inactive addiction. So the, the lawyer was t- telling me all the rules and stuff. And he's like, well, they'll let you out. And that's all I needed to hear. I'm like, they'll let me out. He's like, yeah, but you got to do stuff to stay out. And I'm like, okay, bro, you know, whatever you say, just let me out of here. And then I was on bond you know, because they let me out, but I had a warrant in another county and then they just let me out. And then I came back to Green Bay to turn myself into Green Bay, um, you know, for treatment court. And then a buddy of mine was running the streets and he gave me, you know, two ounces of meth when I touched down. And he's like, don't you got to go to treatment court? I'm like, not anymore, dude. You know, and then I was out ripping and running and then I got an OWI. And then someone showed up to the, you know, my, my hearing that day from green Bay and was like, listen, if you don't turn yourself in tomorrow, we're going to throw you, throw you, we're going to make sure you get six years in prison. So I went in the next day and I turned myself in and because I didn't technically start the program, they couldn't kick me out, Mm. which was the weirdest loophole. But again, it was my higher power at work. And what led to all this was like someone setting me up initially, like, you know, 14 months ago. And I remember when I first got sober. I was like, so mad at him. Like, if I ever see that dude, but you know, at now that I look back at it with a clear mind, a sober mind, it was the best thing that could ever happen to me, you know, yeah. because if he doesn't do that, I don't get into, you know, treatment court and I'm probably either in prison for a long time or dead, you know? And then I, um, I was doing real well in treatment court, you know, actually I was not yet. I was doing just enough to get my, my papers signed and, you know, stay out of jail. You know, I was half-assing it, you know, when you're an addict, bro, you, we suck at moderation. You know, we have to be all in or not at all. And so I was out in the real world, you know, free, but I was still doing time in my head because I hadn't addressed any of the symptoms of my disease. And then I had about 42 days of sobriety and I was living with this girl who was still using, you know, for the lack of a better word, she was beating the hell out of me, man. I was, I was in a battered spouse and I'm not, you know, I'm being totally serious here, you know, and I like, it got to the point where I was going to IOP and they were giving me like, domestic violence pamphlets and go, do mm. the, does any of this stuff apply to you? And the only thing they didn't was about being pregnant. Mm. I'm like, holy shit, man, I'm, I'm a, I'm a battered spouse. And, uh, so I made it through Christmas, Christmas Eve, you know, new year's Eve, new year's day. And then on January 2nd, she was just like on one and she was hitting me and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I give up. I'm going to, I'm going to go to, I'm just going to kick myself out of the program, go to prison, but I'm not going to be sober when I do it. And, you know, I, I went and used drugs and I called my probation officer, told her I got high and she's like, come in today. And I'm like, I'm not coming in today. I'm not sitting in a little box today. I'm too under the influence for that. But the next day I turned myself in and they gave me a week sanction. And then, then we're going to put me on the ankle bracelet. And then the day before they were going to let me out, I crossed paths with that person that gave me methamphetamine, you know, when I t- came back and he was, you know, I, I know a lot of people from using, but this guy was like my actual friend. And then he, he got laid down for 20 years. And then he, you know, we were passing in the hallway and he's like, dude, they laid me down for 20 years. You're too good for this man. Stop doing what you're doing. You deserve better. And then I went back to my unit. He went back to his unit and he, you know, they locked down the jail 
and I, we didn't know what was happening or whatever. And then the next morning when we were in our cells and they were sliding us our food, they were like, his name is Christopher McConney. He, um, he went in his cell and hung himself. And I was like, <sighs> is this, was I the last person he spoke to? Was that the last thing he said to anybody? And I'm in my cell, I'm looking at my little nasty tray and I'm listening to my cellmate tell me what a big baller he is on the street. And jail's got that smell and I'm looking at all the, you know, the, the beige walls and I'm like, dude, there's no way my story ends like this. Like mm. th- this is not the last place I'm going to see. So they let me out and I went to a meeting and <clears throat> I was really, I had a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of remorse because I gave my mom 42 days of hope. I gave my son 42 days of hope. And I, I was like literally in the middle of texting my drug dealer because I just wanted to die. You know, I didn't want to, you know, no accountability. I just wanted to end it all. And, um, this lady, I never, you know, I've seen her around, but I didn't know her. And she like, she saw, she must've saw what I was doing. She like points for me to sit back down. I'm like, yes, ma'am. You know, and my drug dealer left and she asked me how I was doing. And I, she, I told her I fell off and she like gave me a hug. And I just remember that hug she gave me like was life-saving. Like I needed that, you know, like someone just to show me that they care and they love me. And, you know, after that, I, I pushed all my chips in the middle of the table recovery. I, you know, I went a thousand percent, a hundred miles an hour, whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. And I would, you know, at this point I'm living at the Oxford sober living house and I, I quickly became president. And then that really helped me in my recovery because it helped me hold others accountable, you know, and then it taught, taught me how to keep myself accountable as well. And then, you know, I'm doing, I'm just killing it in drug court. Like I'm helping, you know, pick up garbage and like, I'm going to meetings and I'm sharing and I'm talking about like the things I'm sharing with you right now. And it was truly freeing. And then I was working, you know, my steps with a sponsor in NA and he was, you know, I was working with him for about nine months and then he messaged me one day and he's like, sorry, man, I can't be your sponsor. And then I, you know, I started freaking out. I'm like, what did I do, man? And he's like, no, I've been using drugs this whole time. And I'm Mm. like, holy shit. And I remember like just thinking like, so is everything I learned from this guy or everything he suggested? I'm like, is this all nonsense? You know, is he just instruct me in a bad way? But, you know, I look back and he, and that was one of the things I learned most from him that anyone's susceptible to this disease, no matter what, because he was going into like jails and institutions and speaking, you know, he was, you know, going around like we do with bridge the gap and things like that. You just sharing his story. But the whole time, he, you know, he put his mask back on and, you know, that made, you know, I'm not grateful that he fell off, but it, it was the reminder I needed. Yeah. It and reminds then, you that people that you put on a, a pedestal or that, you know what I mean? They're human mm-hmm. too. They it can happen too. You know, there's a saying that I love, especially working in this field is, uh, get close enough to the fire to enjoy the warmth. Don't get too close to where you get burnt. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Because when you're hearing people talk about whoop de whoop, I picked up people, places, things. If you get too mm-hmm. close to that fire, you, you will get burnt. Right. So, so it's like when you, and listen, this is for ed, anybody in recovery. Like when you're doing service work, you're going to these fellowship meetings, you're giving back. It, it, it's a lifestyle. And when you're in the lifestyle, that's fantastic. That's, but you also got to be realistic and know that you need to set some boundaries because Absolutely. otherwise you're going to get too close to the fire and you're going to get burnt. And it happens to people especially some people that are doing the most, you know what I mean? Because they're hearing the most, they're exposed to the most. Like we walk around people and we try to pull them out of active addiction. Well, guess what that means? That means we're getting pretty close to that fire. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you sharing. And you know, it's, it's crazy. Like I'm hearing like the dun, 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 like, like this, the Rocky comeback song. You know what I mean? Sounds like you're, you're, you're kind of coming back from all this stuff, which is beautiful, man. Where does it go from here? 
you know, and then, um, you know, I'm at sober living, I, you know, and I'm about to graduate drug court and I got my first apartment, you know, my own place, you know, with my own money, you know, no, you know, legally and all that stuff. And, you know, I got my car, my license, you know, and I basically got all the boxes checked, you know, to be a responsible member of society. And then I graduated drug court and, um, you know, it was just like for, you know, six months, it was like, now what, you know, and then, you know, I was going to the gym and, you know, things like that, you know, and going to meetings and sharing, but I wasn't really, do, you know, I got, you know, like, cause when you go up for a while, you, you kind of can like plateau off or taper off for a while. So I'm like, now what? The pink cloud you know? bursts. I, Did your pink cloud yeah. burst? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, um, you know, it just got stagnant, you know, yeah. I, you know, cause I was doing everything that everyone else was doing. And then on new year's Eve of 2020, that's when I met David John Peters, the founder of Never Give Up. And he he just got out of, he was at Jackie Nitschke Center in Green Bay. And he came with a bunch of people from the center at this um, function in a small town in Wisconsin. And it was super weird because like the whole town was like flooded and then ice like flooded off like 90% of the roads, except for the one road to this church where the function was. So for him and me to be there, it was just in our higher power working, you know, as well. You know, and, and I remember seeing him come in because he was, you know, he's six foot nine and he had a Vikings jersey on in Minnesota and I'm from Minnesota, too. And we live in Green Bay. So, like, obviously, I'm like, are you really a fan? And, you, know, you know, and so we bonded right there. Relatability then, right off the bat, right from the Vikings jersey. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, shade from like Green Bay people about my Vikings stuff. But I'm like, if it wasn't for the Vikings, this group might not be here, man. So, <laughs> you know, but um, how many years ago was my, that? That was uh New Year's Eve of 2000 going into 2020. So January 1st, 2020, you know, so 2019 and, um, you know, and then we start, you know, and I was kind of helping him navigate, you know, the recovery waters, you know, because like when he walked in that room, he had the same look that I had, like, Oh yeah. Why are people being so nice to me? What do they want from me? This is weird. You know, I remember thinking all that same stuff. I'm like, dude, it's cool, man. Everybody just wants to help you. Don't, don't question it. Just accept it. You know? And he's like, really? And, um, you know, and then he started, you know, getting in active in his own recovery. And he got out of the Nitschke house, he got his own apartment. And, um, you know, he had his slips and his falls, but you know, like, you know, the beginning of never give up, you know, the night before he relapsed and, you know, he called me cause he trusted me and, you know, I, I helped him through it. And, you know, and then like in, in his desperation, you know, it, at the bottom, you know, his bottom, when he felt, you know, he knew exactly what an addict like himself needed. And that's where never give up was formed you know, a judgment free zone where you can come and talk about anything without ridicule, without harassment, without politics, without all that stuff. And that's, you know, one thing I'm really proud of the never give up Facebook group anyway, like in the beginning, there was like spammers and, you know, you know, 13 steppers and like, you know, but like, for the most part, we, we do a really good job of keeping it just about what you're struggling with, or what you what you're celebrating today, you know, and again, it just day one, man, it just took off. And, you know, he's, uh, he, he really started this amazing thing, you know, and I'm, I'm really honored and proud that I get to help see this thing keep going, you know? And like I said, it just, it was a Facebook group that gave people an escape from the uglies of the world in 2020 and, you know, going into 2021 and, you know, we were really on our way to do big things, but, you know, life doesn't care about your plan. You know, he, um, he succumbed to heart failure at 30, 38 or 39 years old, Mm. you know, he, um, he wasn't taking care of himself, you know, it wasn't, it, you know, and it, that was the hardest thing I ever had to deal with sober, you know? And I remember because of like the social media aspect, 
you know, and we, we had such, you know, a big following. Like I remember I had to take 10 feet, you know, from my bedroom to my bathroom. And it took me two hours because my phone just kept dinging, dinging, dinging. Like what happened to Dave? What happened to Dave? And I just, you know, and I shut down and I didn't want to use drugs, but I didn't want to feel anything. I didn't want to, you know, acknowledge any, you know, I was just in a, in a bad spot, you know, but that's, you know, with my best friend being gone, you know, but he left me this amazing group of people to show me support and love at my darkest time, you know, and I'm truly grateful and blessed for that, you know, and like, just to be able to keep this thing going. And, you know, we had a lot of obstacles overcome, you know, not just COVID and trying to find like places to, you know, you know, have functions and things like that, you know, and not with all the uglies in the world, but, you know, like trying to get our 501c3 and we had all these people trying to come on board just to say they were on board, but not really do anything. And that's fine. You know, but you know, the real ones remain and we're now we're trying to do this thing. And I'm just like truly honored and blessed, you know, like if it wasn't for that group, I'm not here talking to you today. You know, I would have never met been at bridge the gap, you know, sharing my story there and meeting people like yourself and pastor Pat and drew and Joe and, you know, Higgy and, you know, all the, I forget who else was there at this moment, you know, Brittany and James Smith, you know, and it's just like, <clears throat> this is what recovery is, man. I'm truly just like, in awe of what like my life has become in, you know, the last five and a half years, you know, like I, you know, I have bad days, but like the, the things in, you know, it, when I have a beautiful day, it makes it that much more beautiful, you know, and it's because of recovery, you know, I'm not perfect, you know, like I have rough, you know, goals and, you know, sometimes just things don't go my way, but I can accept that today, you know, yeah. like, mm -hmm. yeah, man, I love it. It's beautiful. That's a message of hope right there. You know what I mean? That is a message of hope. You know, you touched on one concept that I kind of want to feel for a sec, just because it baffles me. It like blows me away and I'm going to be a hypocrite because I, I'm sure I was the same way, but like, um, so like I'm notorious for in process group, if the card comes to you, right, the feelings card and you look at it, you're supposed to pick a feeling and then talk to us about why you feel that way, the thoughts, right. And then the whole group gets involved in the share and you know, it's that support, that safe, that group conscience, um, we're moving out of small mind into big mind, all the therapeutic stuff. And sometimes I'll have these people that get referred from the justice system that'll join. Right. And it's fine. Right. I was one of those people and they'll yeah. say pass. And I'm like, Nope. And they, yeah. they like, look at me like, well, I ain't sharing in here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well then you don't have to be in here. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll let your PO know that you're leaving. And it, 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 yeah. it like, they don't get it right now. Let me rewind. Now that I've said that I'm, I'm not trying to make anybody sound bad because I was this guy. It's funny, man, how our mentalities change. I remember when I went to jail and I was on, uh, you know, drug related charges, man, I was writing my judge. I was praying every day to get into treatment. Like, please, please, God, please judge, please PO send me to treatment. Don't give me prison. Right. Like give me a program yeah. over prison. And I was all about it. You know what I mean? And then I get into a program and I'm like, no, I ain't doing it. This is dumb. This is lame, right? Like it, this mentality yeah. blows me away. It's like that. How dare you help me improve my life mentality? I, I, yeah. I Like I don't get it, but yet we do it. And one of the coolest things that I've seen is when that defiance hits, hits a hard obstacle, right? Like when, when you say, nope, you're in here, it's a gift to be in here. You don't have to be here. And if you're going to mm -hmm. be in here, you're going to contribute, you're going to share. And to watch the yeah. transformation of that breakdown of ego. And, and I've seen some dudes that got tats from head to toe and they're about that life. Just completely yeah. take off the mask and really just let people love them and like let yeah. the whole recovery environment embrace them. 
And that is what keeps me going, dude. Like, you know, that in connection with people like you. And so anyways, I went off on a tangent there, but it's something I'm pretty passionate about because it's just, and I get it. I was that guy. You know what I mean? Until I realized like that concept of like, wait a minute, I asked to be here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I was desperate to be here. So might as well get something out of it. So talk to me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, when I first started IOP, um, I, you know, I went like to four groups and I didn't say a word. And then the counselor, this guy, I can't say his name because a hippo or whatever, but he, um, he's like, you got something to say today? I'm like, nope. And he, he put me in a chair in the corner and then he had everyone in the group or in the room tell me something that, you know, about myself. And then like, they just let me have it. And I remember I was going to throw a chair at this guy, you know, but like, <laughs> That was one of those moments where he's like, you know, you got, he's like, you got to hear what your peers think of you, you know, because they're in here trying to do better. And when you come in here all stone faced, just staring at the ground, you know, looking at the clock, it's disrespectful to people trying to do better, you know? And then, and, but like, I needed that dose of humility, you know, that, you know, not humiliation, but that humility, because like, you know, when we're in the dope game, when we do like all this sinister stuff or whatever, we, we think we're like these bad mamma jammas. And then like, when we get broke down like that, you know, it, it's really humbling and it makes us like rethink everything we thought we knew. You know, I'm like, I used to be a bad dude. I used to pack pistols and now yeah. I got a bunch of people in the classroom insulting me. What the hell just happened? You know, <laughs> it, I, but it really does. It makes you question that programming, right? Because we all come in with programming. We all have programming from our childhood, from our, our drug use years, from our jail time. We have all this programming that we have to challenge. We have to take a look at that programming and go, Why? Why do I still hold on to this stuff? And if I want yeah. different, first of all, I have to know better to do better. But if I want different, I have to be willing to change that programming. You know, so again, I love it, right? Like here's here's Matt. He hits a hard object, that counselor, and then he just kind of diffuses and starts, you know what I mean? It's I can just see it like a chart in my head. It's beautiful. We got two minutes here, Matt. I know that you're doing some cool things. Talk to me real quick about shoes. I know that's a passion for you. I see you on social media doing the shoe thing. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's um, it's just a business I started because um, I love shoes. And I remember as a kid, I had an aunt who would kind of spoil me from every time, you know, because my mom would always give me like pay less shoes that would fall apart anyway. But with the first pair of Jordans I got, you know, I held my head up. I was like, yeah, I had a little swag, you know. And then at the second Never Give Up meet and greet, there was these kids that Dave looked after and they're, you know, their parents don't do the, you know, they're not financially stable or, you know, doing the best, I should say. And I, I got them two pairs of Jordans, you know, each. And I remember they had that same look that I had, you know, and I'm, you know, and then I got an inheritance from my real dad passing. I didn't know him, but I'm like, how can I take this money and do some good with it? And that's what I did. I, I invested in a bunch of shoes and I take some of the profits from the shoes to donate uh, shoes to a needy kid once a month. Like last month I did one for Father's Day. Um, we did one for Mother's Day. Um, it's just, you know, cause I love shoes. So it's not really work for me. You know what I mean? It's just something I'm passionate about. And, Bro, who doesn't you know, love shoes? I, don't I know. love I shoes mean, too, man. Right? Like you should see my closet. I'm competing with my wife on the shoe shelf. You know what I'm saying? I I get it, man. I get it. That's awesome. Bad. We got yeah, about thirty seconds. Not- thirty seconds left here, Matt. I just want to let you know, dude. You're like a beacon all the way from Wisconsin, and I, you know, I hope that my my lights as bright as your beacon here in in St. George, Utah. But man, like again, I just got a lot of love and a lot of gratitude for you, bro. 
Yeah, you too, man. I really appreciate this. Keep on keeping on with that. Never give up and helping people and just keep being a symbol of hope. Thanks for being on this podcast, buddy. My pleasure, man. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for joining us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by High Desert Counseling, Rise Up Supplements, and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of its sponsors. This has been a production from a podcast studio.